Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning. Um, a portion of this message this morning is brought to you by Stephanie because she found some of my notes that I didn't see her going, where'd they go? She found them on the platform there. So this message is brought to you by Stephanie Prolaghi. Um, we have not been receiving offering during our services during the pandemic. Uh, we're doing communion differently as well. Uh, there are um, uh, boxes in the back in regards to that. There's also online. Today we are into the second part of what is to be a five-part series entitled A Different Way just simply that, a different way. Last week it was a different way to live. Today we're going to talk about a different way to think. I'm going to begin by reading to you out of the scripture in John chapter 18, verses 37 and 38. Jesus standing before Pilate for judgment. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. That was his reason to come into the world, testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate's response, what is truth? With that, let us open in prayer. Father, we come before you. Lord, we give to you of our tithes and our offerings, whether online or in present here, not out of compulsion or manipulation, but simply because you have freely and generously given to us, there's not a thing we have that didn't come from you. So we take moments like this to worship you in a tangible expression to show that you are the ruler of our lives, that we acknowledge you tangibly before any government or anything else, that, that you are the giver of things. We do it also to identify with you, Lord, and to further your purposes. And now, Lord, we come before you, and I ask God that this morning through your word and through your Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to hearts and minds, that you would show us a different way, not just to live, but how to think. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There was a statement when I was in college that was kind of hammered into us at the time. It was entitled, All Truth is God's Truth. The concept behind it was not just that the Bible is true, but that in fact anywhere truth is discovered, truth being an objective statement of the reality that surrounds us, that ultimately it flowed from God. If an astronomer discovers something that is a true aspect of the cosmos, it's from God ultimately. If a scientist discovers something of the human genome, whatever else, if it's a true statement, then it flows from God. Everything that is truth, that is defining reality, comes ultimately from God. I was so caught with this uh, coming out of college that I had a ring made, and inside inscribed was the phrase, all truth is God's truth. 
I somewhere didn't pay enough attention to it because somewhere down the line, after a couple of years, the ring was either lost or stolen. I can't think of a better metaphor for our society right now than that. That the idea that there was at one time or exists objective truth that ultimately always points us back to God has in our society, if not been stolen outright, has been that in fact lost. There's a movie entitled Vantage Point. Um, in this movie, I think Dennis Quaid stars in Sigourney Weaver, a bunch of others. In this movie, uh, an American president goes to Spain to give an anti-terrorism address. And he's assassinated. And then the movie proceeds to have us view the assassination from eight people's different vantage points or viewpoints. Each one having viewed it, each one having a viewpoint, but you discover as it goes along that each viewpoint is incomplete or even inaccurate. And it is interesting because they keep rolling back to the initial assassination, but now from a differing viewpoint. But all of them are basically, until the very end you get all of them collected together, you don't understand what's actually taken place. Along with that, I'd offer to you today a quote from a woman named Madeleine Langle. Now, Madeleine Langle wrote a book called A Wrinkle in Time, a whole series of them, actually. It's a children's book, but it was infused with her Christian belief. And some Christians have some issues because there are a few magical aspects about it, but at its core, it's a really profound statement. Now, the movie was made not too long ago. Uh, the movie was made out of the book, rather. And it starred uh, Oprah Winfrey and Reese Witherspoon and Chris Pine and all these you know, great stars. And I was really looking forward to this book that had meant so much to me as a kid. It's very fortunate that I was on a plane at the time that I was able to see the movie. The reason I say that is because planes have barf bags. And I would recommend gouging your eyes out before you ever see the movie version of this book. It's absolutely horrible. Not only is the interp terrible, but what really made it unpalatable is they stripped everything that had any Christian nuance to it out of it. This is, in fact, a lot of what our world has done today. And I'm not arguing a Christian viewpoint or Christian culture. I'm arguing for the position that God would have on certain things or things that would point us to him. Madeleine Langle very famously made this quote at one point in time. She said, I have a point of view. You have a point of view. God has view. I hope you understand the quote. I have a point of view. You have a point of view. God, though, has a view. He has view. He understands and encompasses everything that's part of this. Last week I told you that one of my real irritations is, is the idea of trendiness because trendiness at its core is shallow, transitory, and doesn't point us towards eternity whatsoever. Doesn't mean we shouldn't keep up with the trends. Of course we should. But becoming trendy is a whole different issue. So now I'll take you on a separate journey today when I say that the phrase, my truth, your truth, their truth, is, how can I say this? An utterly ridiculous statement to be made. 
it brings out the idea that there is no objective truth, that truth is malleable, that is entirely dependent upon perspective or a subjectivity. Uh, Colbert had this early on when he defined the term truthiness. He said, the quality of seeming or being felt to be true, even if not necessarily true. But if I feel it, then it must be the case. There is, in our world, no longer any understanding of what is true or what is not. In fact, we are in a time period of incredible confusion because of the loss of that. It's like trying to find the way without a compass, which incidentally deals with objective truth or other directional things. I don't know if you've ever tapped into Snopes, but Snopes is, is um, a thing that tries to validate and debunked sometimes urban legends, fake news, old wives tales, even some bad journalism. But they've been saying that since the internet is so incredibly full of lies and fake stories that it's getting overwhelmed. Snopes co-finder Dave Mickelson says, it's hard to keep up with all the false stories on the internet. This past week or recently, Mickelson told The Guardian, a news source, quote, there are more and more people piling on to the internet and the number of entities pumping out material keeps growing. I'm not sure I'd call it a post-truth age, I would, but there's been an opening of the sluice gate and everything is pouring through. And then this statement, the bilge keeps coming faster than you can pump. Now that's a nautical term. And what it basically is is this. In any boat or ship, for the most part, there's always cracks or some places where water could get in. And so there's a pump in the bottom of the boat called a bilge pump. And it pumps this water out, usually constantly, but to some degree, to make sure the boat doesn't sink. Bilge water is known as really nasty gross stuff because usually there's things crawling it and growing in it and it's at the bottom of the boat and it's without light and so bilge itself is kind of sewagey type stuff and so the illustration he's using here is saying there's so much filth and sewage and stuff going into our boat that it's going to sink it because the pumps can't keep up with pumping it out okay minor sub point I said this once before, and someone didn't like it, so allow me to repeat it. <laughs> Studies show that Christians are more inclined towards conspiracy theories and spreading falsehood than others. That's insane. If we are followers of Christ, if we are Christians, we're supposed to be people of truth. We're supposed to be propagators of that. So let me say to you in the most intense way that I can, I beg of you, before you post anything, before you forward anything, before you just pass it along in any way, shape, or form, research it. Make sure you understand clearly whether it's true or not. If it's not and you can't verify it, don't pass it on. Otherwise, it just feeds into the garbage and into the bilge that's just forming up all around us. Now, personal rant over, let us move on. There's another British writer, G.K. Chesterton. He made the statement that fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they become fashions. 
Fallacies or things that are false do not cease to be false just because they become fashionable. Just because certain things have come into view in a certain way and a majority of people tie into that doesn't mean that those things are correct. You have a view. I have a view. God has view. Pilate doesn't get this. And so there's to be a response as we go forward. Paul's talking to his younger son of the faith, a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he's warning him. He's saying, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, stories, conspiracy theories. And I understand why these things happen. There's such a high degree of mistrust. We don't know what sources we can believe in any longer. And there's also a lot of fear. And we'll talk about that at a later time as well, too. But he's saying, look at we would turn these ways. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 goes on and says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Make sure that these things don't take hold of you. And they don't grab you. Another study has shown that in this country of America, over 70% of Americans identify as Christians. But only 13% have a Christian worldview. 70% identify as Christians, which means a significant portion of you in this room today identify as Christians if you are typical Americans, but only a small percentage, I hope a larger percentage, but the studies would say only a small percentage of us actually have a Christian worldview. In other words, the way we think or view the world is through a Christian or biblical lens. Let me give you one example of this. We talked last week about God being a God of subtraction, not addition. That too many people just add him along and don't change any aspects of their life at all. There was a gangster, a murderer, and a gangster named Mickey Cohen, operated in the 60s, I think, or so. Mickey Cohen, a violent, horrible man. At some point later in his life, he encounters Billy Graham. They have a conversation. Out of this conversation, Mickey begins to identify as a Christian. After a period of time, he doesn't have any significant changes or adjustments going on to his life. And so as that time continues on, people begin to challenge him in regards to that. And his response to that is simply this. There are Christian football players. There are Christian cowboys. There are Christian politicians. Why not Christian gangsters? I'm not making that up. So his view is that he was a Christian gangster. He would have been one of those 70% that identified as a Christian, but there had been no change, no adjustment in his view or reality whatsoever.
Ephesians chapter 4. We'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. So clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way and more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. That we're supposed to be careful of how we handle these things, that there's supposed to be a transformation and change that takes place in us, and that that change should not only affect our lives, but it also affects our speech and how we engage in other people. That we're supposed to speak the truth, but it's supposed to be in love, that it's supposed to be with a thoughtfulness, that correction should not be harsh and heavy, but rather with tears in our eyes and a consideration. There was a movie a ways back. And a lot of times in different movies, Jesus is portrayed as addressing the Pharisees this way. It's with great authority, but usually with a harsh edge. This one passage, Woe to you Pharisees, you blind guides, you are like whited sepulchers. Outside you look white and pure and clean, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And everyone shakes and trembles. And then there was a movie put out just entitled Matthew, and it was after the Gospel of Matthew. Jack Hayford was in the initial viewing because one of the people who attended his church was one of the primary actors playing the part of Jesus. Jack is known as a pretty graceful guy. So as this portion of the movie comes up and the actor is interpreting, the interpret is different. This time, this man is interpreting it this way. As Jesus saying, you Pharisees, you blind guides. You are like whited sepulchers on the outside. You look so white and pure, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And he's practically weeping as he's portraying it. Jack jumps up in the middle of the screen and says, I knew it was like that. Like it would actually have been the interpretation. But what he was trying to say in that thought is how we approach things. Is it with an arrogance and a harshness? Or is it with tears? I don't know if Jesus approached it which way. He would have had the right to do either one. But I do know that his motive was and is to change and transform minds and lives, not to destroy people. It's to transform hearts and lives, not to destroy people. And if we're going to be followers of Christ and followers of the truth, then those things should not only change our lives, but it also should change how we engage with other people. I have a view. You have a view. God has view. So let me this morning give you a little bit of God's view. I am not going to attempt to detail or defend these. We have done that at other times and we'll do so in the future. But simply for the purposes of defining this moment, God's view is that there is one race, the human race. That's it. God's view is that all members of that race, having been created in the image of God, all have intrinsic value worthy of dignity and respect. God's view is that there are two genders, not a spectrum, male and female, he made them. God's view is that marriage is the union of a biological male and a biological woman coming together. Now, those last two were until recently held to be truth throughout all of human history and almost every single human culture on the planet 
with one or two minor exceptions. And now even to make the statement I just made is increasingly being defined as hate speech. Let's come back to that in a moment. I mentioned history. And those of you that know me know that I am a big student of history. I believe history is extremely important because history tells us where we've been and it can help to know how we got here and to where we're going. It gives us a trajectory of where we've been. And if you lose sight of that, then we become easily deceived. George Orwell was a brilliant British writer of decades past, writer of a book called The Animal Farm, another book called 1984, that if you've not read it, you should read it because it reads like 2021. But written way early, entitled 1984. And one thing in that book he wrote with a party that was controlling the country at that time in his narrative, made this statement, who controls the past, reigned the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. The Communist Party in Russia took this very seriously, and so they would airbrush out people in history that were in pictures, literally airbrush and put someone else in, because they recognized very much the truth of that, that if you control the past, and people's perspectives of it, then you can control the future. And whoever has the present can control the past. And so there's going to come quickly a time when some of the things we even talked about here, that these were actually part of history, won't even be believed or accepted any longer. It's important that we remember those roots. Orwell went on to say something else also about a society that moves away from truth. And it says this, the further a society drifts from the truth the more it will hate those who speak it. The more it will hate those who speak it. Jesus stands before Pilate. A greater representation of Americans you couldn't find, the Romans. The Romans had a worldwide empire. Culturally, they dominated. They were people of logic and, well, okay, not all but lines up. But they were people of of, of, of based on on certain degrees of, of structure. And so Jesus is encountering Pilate, or rather he, him, and he says, I don't know what truth is. This is incredibly ironic considering who's standing before him. People who know truth and love it, listen to me, Jesus says. He says, I don't even know what it is. We go into John's book in the first, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, meaning Jesus. And John says, we've seen his glory. I knew him personally. And the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and... Okay, I want you to catch this word because this is a theme for the day. Who came from the father, full of grace and... I just want you to say the word one more time. Truth. Comes to us with grace and truth truth. It goes on. He goes on in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, Jesus talking to some Jewish people, and he says to the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you will really be my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my perspective, if you hold to the position I hold, the view I have, then you'll really be my disciples. Then you will know 
the truth, and the truth will set you free. In the confusion of our world today, there's a, there's a thought that somehow in embracing all these various subjective ideas that there's going to be freedom. In fact, it's actually more bondage than it's been freedom. True freedom comes in knowing God's view on an issue, understanding that and integrating that into who we are and who we think. In John chapter 8, he's having a discussion further on with others who are not believing him. He says, why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. If you want to carry out your father's desires, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, and there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. He's speaking to these people, and they say, well, well we're not grasping it. He says, that's because your spiritual father is the one who rules this world. Lies is just who he is. Our whole trouble as a people began with lies in the garden, and it's continued on. And this is who your spiritual person is who's blinded you. It's just who he is and what he does. His whole purpose is to confuse, distract, ultimately to destroy all of mankind. He says, yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me, because you are captured by these other philosophies and ideas and thoughts. I tell you the truth, and you don't believe me. Did he yell that in anger? Or did he say it with tears? And yet, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Because of what's dominating your thinking. What has captured your ideas. You're entranced by one who lies, and so you can't see the truth. John 14, 6, later, in the same author's dissertation, Jesus makes the statement, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now the phrase that would have jumped out at the early Jews there would have been the statement, I am, because they would have recognized in saying that he was identifying with God. The God who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Who should I say sent me? Say, I am. The name for Yahweh. And so when he says, Yahweh says, I am, everyone freaks out. And they aren't paying attention to the next phrases as much. The next phrase is the way actually was the statement for Christianity in the, in the early beginnings of it. People said, it's the way. A way, different way to live. A different way to think. The way. Jesus says, I am the way. He goes on and says, I am the truth. The basic structure of reality I created. I am the very definition of what truth and reality is. And then he goes on and says, I'm the life. That I give life. That that's how we have life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This exclusionary statement that there's only one way, only one specific way, an objective fashion, it's the only way to come. And we sit here and say, well, that's exclusionary. And we get criticized for that and saying, well, you, you know, that's, that's so narrow, so ridiculously narrow. And I understand that today we can say that 2 plus 2 equals 5 if I feel like it, but we know objectively that 2 plus 2 equals 4. For those of you that this past week or so decided to travel, it seems like everyone went to Florida for some reason. Those of you that decided that you were going to go to Orlando and you go up to the gate and it says Houston, objective truth at that point becomes very real to you. 
I was actually in an airport one time in Paris years ago, and I'd come back from Dakar, a mission we had there. I was in Paris. I was tired. I was wiped out. I checked the gate, and the gate was going to Detroit, but I had four hours to spare, so I went off, and I ate something. I laid down for a while. I came back, checked it again for an hour before the flight, and it's still going there, so I'm going to do a little bit around. I come back about a half hour before the flight, and I just get in line, and I'm in line, and I go all the way through the line, and I get up to the point where I'm about to board the airplane, and they check my passport and check my identifications, and they say, you don't want this airplane. And that's when I look up and realize this plane's going to Moscow. <laughs> and I had about 20 minutes to run across through, through all sorts of trams and other things to get to my plane and run across the tarmac and be really the last person to board the plane to Detroit. Objective truth matters. It determines where we go and where we end up. It matters. If I play into the fantasy of those who don't believe in truth, if I don't offer God's view in love, I'm contributing to their death. Jesus Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And the truth properly applied doesn't kill, but saves lives. How do I know that? Because Proverbs chapter 14, verse 25 says, a truthful witness saves lives. But a false witness is deceitful. If we do not understand the truth ourselves, our lives are lost. If we don't understand it and are not able to articulate it lovingly and respectfully to someone else, other lives are lost. It's not a loving thing to leave people in their delusions or in their lies. This is why Jesus answered boldly, I am God. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life, guys. I've come to save the world, not to destroy the world. Orwell made the statement, the further society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those that speak it. We're not drifting from the truth in this society. We are at Mach 5, running from it. What does that mean then? Well, Isaiah the prophet had a good grasp of it, not only for his own time, but for our time. In one of her powerful passages in Isaiah 59, verse 13, it says this, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, which is most of what this is about. Inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies that our hearts have conceived. And then this imagery, powerful. And so justice, it personifies all these characteristics. So justice is driven back. And righteousness stands at a distance, can't get close. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Reminds me of the old Hamburg commercial. I've fallen and I can't get up. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty can't even enter. And truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey, becomes a target. This is the state of our country today. Rebellion, telling a creator, I don't care what you made for me or what it is. I'll determine, I'll decide things. And so justice is driven back. Truth is stumbled in the streets. And then we can become prey if you stand up for the truth or hold to that objective things. And we could end there, but that's not the fullness of it. Let's go on to Psalm chapter 25 where it says, In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Show me your ways, Lord. Give me your view of things. Teach me your paths. Change my life, in other words. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. 
that we can put our trust in God, that, that we want him to show us the pathway to understand how we're supposed to operate, how we're to move. There was a novelist a couple of years back. He wrote a book called 100 Years of Solitude. His name was Garcia Marquez. I think he was Colombian. And he wrote in this um, novel, 100 Years of Solitude, about this small little town in Colombia. Kind of a magical place in certain ways, but with some real tragedy behind it. And at one point in time in the history of this town, um, insomnia, uh, uh, like a disease of it, hits people. It's, con it's contagious. People catch it. And before long, the entire town is caught with insomnia. Now, at first, they think this is great. We can get all sorts of things done. We're never sleeping. We're just doing this is fantastic. And they realize the side effects of not sleeping because in sleep we dream and in dreaming our memories are, are shaped and formed. And they begin to realize slowly they're losing the ability to remember things. Language, other things are starting to fall away. There's a man named Jose who recognizes what's going on so he begins to label everything. Quote, with an inked brush he marked everything with its name, table, chair, clock, door, wall, bed. He went onto the corral and marked the animals and plants, cow, goat, pig, hen, banana, so they could remember. As their memories continued to fade and elude them, Jose decided they'd even be more explicit, so he posted a sign on a cow that read, quote, this is the cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk, and the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee to make coffee and milk. And thus they were living in a reality that was slipping away momentarily captured by words which would escape when they forgot the values of the written words. Eventually, the villagers put two notes at the beginning of the town. One was the name of the town. And the other was a placard that just simply read, God exists. As that knowledge also was slipping away. We are in a society in a time period where the very knowledge of God is evaporating. Where a memory of what had been historical truths through all of time have not just been challenged, but deny that they even exist. That it's your truth, that it's my truth, that it's their truth, but no longer the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I want to offer to you this morning, in conclusion, simply this, that there is an objective truth that is found in the person and in the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I can have a view but ultimately, it's God's view that determines everything. We should remind ourselves and amend ourselves to the understanding of that view in how we think and how we live. That unlike Pilate, when confronted with Christ and the very truth that defined all of reality, that he says, what is it? I don't even know when it's staring me in the face. That said, we're supposed to lean into that truth, into that reality, even if that means that we become a target in the process. 
that as long as we are lovingly and respectfully, thoughtfully speaking those things out in order to save lives, that even if we become a target in the process, that we remember the psalmist that says, in you, Lord, I put my trust. Despite that, God, still show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Change me. Guide me into your truth. God, give me an understanding of how I am supposed to think. how I'm supposed to act, how I'm supposed to live. Our troubles began with lies in a garden. The lies and the water just keeps rising. And we can lean into that flood and become a part of it. Or we can recognize that there is a firm foundation, there is a solid rock, there is a person and a way of thinking and approaching things that can stand against all of time and all the floods that come. That when we lean into that, that it can change not only who we are and how we live, but how we think and how we view the world around us. 70% of our country are Christians. But only a small percentage really believe there's objective truth, really understand and look at things from God's view. You have a view, and I have a view. But God has view. And so, Lord, this morning we come before you in the midst of all the confusion that swirls around us. Despite even the threats that may come from that, we lean into you. We place our trust in you. We ask, Lord, in the midst of whatever fear we have or whatever confusion we have, that your truth would pierce this, that, that we would be those that you said you came to give the truth, and those who lean into that understand it, that we would be those people not in arrogance, not in loudness, but in broken humility. And so, Lord, this morning, in this place and in this time, challenge our thinking. Show us a different way to think and let us pursue that, God. Let us pursue that with all that we are. God, you created reality. You define what truth and reality is. Pilate, when faced with it, couldn't even recognize it. Father, I pray that you would teach us your ways, that you would guide us into what your truth is, that you'd give us the strength to remember who you are. And in the different situations and circumstances we deal with, that we would be people of truth in that, that, Lord, before we post, before we forward, before we do any of those things or engage in a conversation, that we would remember that we're to be people of truth and that we would have your view, your perspective on those things and then lovingly, gently, boldly speak those things out, first in our own lives and then to save the lives that are around us. Guide us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.